listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClinton. I'm letting my imagination run away with me in this episode, Wade, so things might get a little bit unpredictable. There might be some ironic fates involved at the very end. We'll, we'll, we'll just have to see. My big question is, are we entering reality, the Twilight Zone, or the land and time of chivalry? Oh, I can't tell you that right now. It would give it all away. We'll just have to find out. Today in the episode, first up, we're reviewing The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, the new film and long gestating film from Terry Gilliam. And then once we take care of chivalry, it's on to the ironic fates with Jordan Peele's revival of The Twilight Zone, now airing on CBS. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 196 of Seeing and Believing. Arms six miles long. She is in terrible danger. Don't move. Huh? Just lie still. Oh, I see the love light in your eyes. Don Quixote de la Mancha. Come to restore the lost age of chivalry. Well, I wrote that. Blasphemer. A hand of our God in heaven wrote me. Can I read? like you cannot read. I will sound the words, and you can look at the pictures. He actually believes he's done killed. This is going to be fun. He's a saint. He's insane. Don't you... ah! ooh, ooh, ooh. Yes, so we are here. It is episode 196. It's hard to believe that we have been doing this for four years, Kevin, and we're about to hit 200. I know we've talked about this in the past, but it's really exciting, and we have some plans in the works. We still have to finalize a couple of details. Well, maybe maybe more than a couple of details, but <laughs> I am anticipating episode 200 as much, Kevin, as people have been anticipating the first film that we're going to talk about today. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know if it's possible, actually, to <laughs> anticipate it with that much fervor. It, and I do have to say, I'm hoping that our episode has a better chance of actually coming out on time than this first movie that we're reviewing here. <laughs> So, this week's episode, it begins with our review of Terry Gilliam's latest film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. To get us started, here's the movie's official synopsis. Toby, a cynical advertising director played by Adam Driver, finds himself trapped in the outrageous delusions of an old Spanish shoemaker, played by Jonathan Price, who believes himself to be Don Quixote. In the course of their comic and increasingly surreal adventures, Toby is forced to confront the tragic repercussions of a film he made in his idealistic youth. A film that changed the hopes and dreams of a small Spanish village forever. 
Can Toby make amends and regain his humanity? Can Don Quixote survive his madness and imminent death? Or will love conquer all? The film also stars Stellan Skarsgård and Joanna Rebiero. Kevin, much has been made of this film's tumultuous history. Over the course of two and a half decades, it's gone through multiple revisions. It saw stars, including Johnny Depp, come and go, and even began filming once before being shut down. All that being said, it's difficult to separate this work from what we know about its production woes. So, here we go. I'll get us started with the question I think everyone is dying to ask, and that's this. The man who killed Don Quixote, is it worth the wait? Well, it's certainly interesting, and I don't think you can really read this film apart from its tumultuous history. I mean, I think the very opening titles for this film even make a sly reference to the fact that this is a project that Gilliam has tried over and over to get off the ground and just has never quite gotten there. So in in a lot of ways, he's intentionally playing with the audience's knowledge of the film's history and his own history. And he's folding that into the text of the film itself. So it's not just something that we're aware of as an interesting bit of trivia on the periphery. This is a part of the the film itself. It's arguably part of the way that Gilliam wants to wants us to read this film. So I think that makes it interesting by itself. And I think that it's also interesting to watch this knowing that there were earlier versions of this film that were slightly different because Gilliam was a much younger man when those versions were in the pipeline. So it's it's interesting given that this is a film that's about a filmmaker trying to come to terms with the impact his career has had from his youth and seeing the contrast between the young him and the older him and kind of seeing where the tension points between those two versions of himself are. Because that's, in a lot of ways, where Gilliam himself is today. So I I think that that's all very interesting. Is it a successful film? That's a little bit trickier, and I'm, I'm on the fence about it. Certainly, there's a lot to like about this film, and I think it's probably his best one in, in recent memory. I had a good time with this film, but in true Gilliam fashion, it gets messy enough that it almost kind of gets out of his control, especially towards the end. So I'm not sure I can wholeheartedly say that this is the Messiah we've all been waiting for after a long time in the, uh, in the Gilliam desert, so to speak. But I think it is a a very worthwhile film. And certainly for any Gilliam diehards out there, it'll be worth the wait for them. And, and it's, it's fascinating, too, that this is about a young filmmaker who's in many ways kind of given up on his, his dream. He made this student film, this passion project. And now... He's a disinterested commercial director. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, except that he is disinterested and that he's sort of settled. And I think you can read into that maybe 
feelings that Gilliam is experiencing. And then you also look at Coyote's character and how he is bought into his his role. So there's this, this character, he's played by Price, he's a shoemaker, and he plays Coyote in this director's student film. And he gets into the role enough that he becomes that legend. And so like you, Kevin, I'm watching this and I'm wondering, what is Gilliam saying about the roles that we embrace as individuals with our work and even him as a celebrity? And what does that do to you as a person? And how can we look at the distance between where you are now and where you came from? And I think for me, that was my favorite aspect of the film. And I enjoyed the sequences where Driver's character, uh, we do get to see him as a young filmmaker and just to see that passion. And I think that was my favorite aspect of the film to look at Driver's character as a student filmmaker and to look at the passion and the excitement that he experienced and to really kind of relive whatever moments that I had that felt uh, creative or that felt loose and free and how that changes over time. I'm like you. I don't think every aspect works. And I think, I think what I can, I can kind of deal with some of the messiness of the plot. And I think some of that works to the film's advantage. Some of that doesn't. I think for me, near the end of the movie, there were these emotional beats the film was trying to make. And they couldn't because the characters were characters. And they were, they were, they were individuals within a story rather than people that I could relate to. And I think that's a big aspect of it. And I'll talk about how the performances kind of lead into that. Maybe the dialogue leads into that. But I, but I think that's where I'm at as a whole with this movie. Yeah, where this film is the most successful is when you you kind of almost don't know where it's going to go. The the main hook that the entire film is hanging on is, you know, what exactly is going on with Jonathan Price's uh, Quixote actor. Well, we'll just call him Quixote for uh, simplicity's sake in this. He's the actor that Adam Driver's director character, Toby, you know, taps to play Quixote in his student film. And we come to find out that he has embraced the role so fully that years and years later, he's still wearing the armor, still brandishing the bent sword, and still calling himself Don Quixote and wanting to go on an adventure. And as Driver gets sucked into his delusion, the audience does too, to the point where even we're not really sure if what we're seeing can actually be trusted. Like, are we seeing kind of a a, a fantasy uh, that, you know, where, where nothing is real? Are we seeing sort of a what's actually happening just with kind of a fantasy gloss over it. So when Toby and Quixote are engaged in this fight with this mirrored knight, and it turns out that uh, it's really just kind of a flock of sheep that they're, they're hanging around with, that begs the question of, you know, well, is there, is there some sort of actual confrontation going on there? And it's just sort of, they don't really realize fully that they're, dealing with just a herd of sheep and their shepherd or is there something or is it just completely fantastical that they're it's all in their heads and 
then they snap out of it and the sheep just happen to be there. Because the audience isn't sure, that mirrors the the character's lack of grasp on reality itself. And I think that that's effective for the most part. I think maybe where it goes off the rails for me a little bit towards the end is we get so far removed and, and so disoriented that the film loses... As it loses its uh, contact with the gravity of reality, it begins to lose a little bit of its dramatic gravity as well. And you kind of don't know just exactly how seriously you're supposed to be taking any of it. And I think that's where the film loses me a bit. And that might also be partly because it seems like Gilliam is much more at home in Quixote's world than in the world of producers and commercials and artistic disillusionment that Adam Driver's Toby spends most of the movie living in. So it it feels it feels definitely uneven because of those things, but the parts where it's really firing on all cylinders and we are just swept up in this crackpot's fantasy world of knighthood and chivalry, it's a lot of fun. There's some good scenes, too, where you go into a castle and there's these bodyguards wearing sunglasses and uh, individuals playing pool at a pool table, billards. And I think that stuff is is fun and it is playful. I, I think, too, I am with you, Kevin. At the end... We're not sure where the danger is. We're not sure if there's danger. We know something's going on, but what's happening in his mind? And I think that is where it does get messy. For me, I do think the biggest weakness in the film is the chemistry between Driver's character and between Price's character. I like Adam Driver. I I, I think he's a great performer. Here, it... I just I don't think it works, and I don't think it's his fault. I think it's the character that he's being asked to play. But this character is kind of just yelling all of the time and making it kind of difficult for us to relate in a way. And then you have Price's character, and I think he does a, a pretty good job. But both of those performances, and, and most of this has to do, I think, too, with the dialogue. They're just not on the the right wavelength. And I remember at one point, there was this exchange between both of them. And I thought it was really funny. And it was done pretty well. And I I wrote down just a note on my, uh, on my notebook uh, to remember that section of the film. And then I thought to myself, if, if I'm writing this down, and this is really kind of standing out to me as like one of those singular moments when, oh, it's really clicking, then I'm not sure if the film is clicking as a whole like it should. And so because of that, later on in the movie, when you get these dramatic sequences between Coyote's character and between Driver's character, it it doesn't fit. There's There's really not emotion there for me. There's not this connection there because... They are disconnected in their performances and in their dialogue. So I think that's probably one of one of the bigger weaknesses of of this movie. Oh, I, I don't know if I can agree with you on that. I think that uh, Driver and Price are are both great individually, and I think they make a great pair in this film. I mean, I get that. I I I wish I did. I wish I did agree with you because that would have elevated the movie for me. But 
it just felt like maybe they were kind of talking past each other or just kind of yelling past each other. Like I said, there are some pretty good moments, but those I think are few and far between, sadly. Hmm, yeah, I, I didn't really pick up on on that myself. For me, especially Jonathan Price is such a a wonderful presence in this movie that he really holds a lot of it together. And because of his uh, self-assured uh, insanity as Quixote, that I can believe both Driver's exasperation that you observed where he's just very, you know, just gobsmacked that he's being swept up in this crazy person's quest but it also makes sense when Driver begins to get swept up a little bit in the fantasy of it as well and begins to buy in just enough to make it believable that he's willing to stick with it instead of just sort of going off on his own. So I, I think that their chemistry is pretty good. I think that Price especially has this very uh, gently sarcastic or, or maybe not gently sarcastic uh what's the word i'm looking for ironical i guess he's got this this air about him where he's not just completely haywire he's not off the deep end um he's very in his own way cunning in the way that he approaches drivers complete refusal to engage and that wins the audience over and it begins to win driver over as well and it does lead to a kind of this odd couple dynamic that i think is very winning where driver is sort of the grumbly uh reluctant sidekick and quixote's the the gently reprimanding very very uh droll personality who's sort of making him come along with him and that worked a lot for me i just I just wish Adam Driver Woods wasn't yelling so much in this uh, in this film. I wish he had more range, and you know, ultimately that that didn't work super well. But what I did like about this movie, and I haven't seen very many Terry Gilliam films. I know we did talk about Brazil. I don't know, maybe a couple years ago on the podcast, we did this this capsule review of that. I like that film a lot, and I like how this film explores the subconscious and i think what we get here is as adam driver's character goes deeper into this world these dreams or these visions reveal his personal dreams his fears and his regrets and so even though there were times when this movie didn't necessarily make sense you get this kind of bizarre whimsical tale you get an idea of of what this character is struggling with and i think it's i think it's pretty relatable he's struggling with mistakes he feels like or missed opportunities from his past he's struggling with with regret he's struggling with where he's at in his career feeling like a failure and trying to grasp it all but it's all just happening so quickly and so much is coming at him so much is coming at the audience and it's bizarre and like i said it is it is messy but it communicates what many of us experience and it also communicates this 
the sense that sometimes we do retreat to our dreams or these characters that we've made of ourselves. And, and we do that in order to escape our harsh reality. So there's this sadness at the center of this story and that we are, you know, we, we run to these big characters who defend others and who help others in order to distract ourselves from the way that we've lived our lives. And so there's this whimsical nature to the story, but also this kind of melancholy nature in that we, we distract or uh, we, we run or we hide from what's really happening in the world around us because, frankly, we kind of just sometimes don't like ourselves. And I think that Gilliam explores that pretty convincingly. One of the things I really appreciated about this film was the the self-critique almost that Gilliam seems to be uh, engaging in throughout the film. It, it's very easy for a director who is working in this sort of whimsical, outsized mode that Gilliam is to let that become almost a gospel, right? Like the gospel of follow your dreams, the gospel of just be, you know, big and loud and and just be yourself and everything will be okay. And you do get that a lot in movies of this nature, right? Like the idea that, you know, your fantasy may be crazy, but it's better than reality. So we'll let ourselves be seduced by that. Isn't that wonderful? I think the man who killed Don Quixote does allow for that to be a theme that's woven throughout this. We are kind of meant to be a little bit uh, amused and a little bit taken with uh, Quixote's insistence on on clinging to this quote-unquote delusion of his where he's a chivalric knight and his self-assuredness and the courage of a sort that he displays in that role is inspiring in a way. And we are meant to enjoy Gilliam as a director, uh, indulging in a lot of his Gilliam-isms. But then on the other hand, there's also an undercurrent that you identified uh, as melancholy, right? This uh, idea that being seduced by dreams doesn't always give you a happy ending. It doesn't make everything okay. And it often can lead you to not treat other people as real. If you're constantly living in this world of dreams, then everything else kind of becomes a means to that end and you lose something as well. And that's something that I really appreciate Gilliam putting into this movie where we see not only how Quixote himself sort of drags people along and and there's this chaos that envelops him wherever he goes, but also in Toby, as a director, uh, as a young director, he came and made the student film in the small village and, you know, for him as an American kind of on this almost safari in rural Spain, it was kind of a lark, a place where he could find himself artistically, where he could make a film that he felt very proud of, where his his art was paramount, and he kind of uh, found the locals to be amusing in their own way. And when he returns to that area in the main action of this film, we see that when he left, it's not like everything stopped. Their lives continued, and some of the people that he left behind after using them in his film, using is being a word that 
I use advisedly, their lives kind of fell apart. And it, I appreciate Gilliam digging into that idea a little bit, just the the idea of a, a film director who really is focused on uh, putting their dreams on screen in a way. Uh, is there kind of this dark undercurrent where he loses sight of the collaborators and the actors he's working with, of their humanity, and sees them as just another wild and crazy prop that he can he can put on screen. And I think that that's not a note that we've necessarily seen Gilliam play, and it's really interesting to see him grapple with that in a movie that he has been almost maniacally focused on trying to get made for decades. And two, I, I don't know enough about Gilliam's history as a director, but I also kind of got the sense that he might be talking about the performers that he used in his films. And it just might be, when you, when you think about a director taking someone in, you could you know take someone unknown and create almost this persona for them because of the role that you give them. And then they could go off and as a result of that achieve fame. And we've all seen performers achieve celebrity status and then fall apart and just slide downhill and it makes you wonder about those directors and how they feel about that and i remember when we had matt zoller sites on talking about oliver stone and oliver stone was talking about charlie sheen he said he talked to him about charlie sheen and he felt really disappointed with everything that kind of happened with their relationship and I, I, I was thinking about that, and I found that interesting. Another thing that really stood out to me, and I guess I have kind of a theory on this or maybe an interpretation of this, but I'm still unsure about it, and I'd love to get your opinion too, Kevin, is this story takes place during Holy Week. And so it, it it's good that we're reviewing it now, right? Uh, releasing this on Good Friday it takes place during Holy Week. At one point, uh, because Adam Driver's character is kind of uh, gone, he comes back and his boss says, you know, we'll just say it's a delay. It's an act of God. Uh, we get these religious parades for Holy Week. And I was trying to figure out what this imagery and what this setting means uh, for this story. I think part of it is during this week, something kind of miraculous or you could say quote unquote magical happens in order for this director to be bumped out of his distracted life and to truly look inward and to realize what he's done to the people around him and to consider sacrifice versus the opposite of sacrifice and selfishness. So I think all that might be this almost religious backdrop to what this character is experiencing and how he's seeing the world. And it takes place because of this specific supernatural moment in time. That's kind of what I have so far, but it's something that I'm still kind of working through. Well, there's there's a couple of things I think that are really interesting about this uh, Holy Week setting in the film. The first is that this is a film without giving too much away that almost has a resurrection of sorts close to the end where the the dream of Don Quixote persists. You know, it's it's not something that can be snuffed out by the forces of evil. Here, uh, 
kind of embodied as this uh, ridiculously diabolical Russian technocrat billionaire that uh, Toby's producer is trying to woo, the creative spirit of Quixote lives on. So there, there is a resurrection to speak of, and that's interesting, especially to have it at the end of the film. So just as Easter falls at the end of Holy Week. The other thing that I see Gilliam doing with this is working with the specific traditions surrounding Holy Week in Spain. These processions that you mentioned uh, have something to do with uh, the Blessed Virgin, right? The Virgin Mary, um, a a young woman is kind of paraded on a float of sorts through the streets of this village, uh, attired as the, the Virgin Mary. And the young woman who was uh, around for young Toby's student film, she is uh, the Virgin Mary at that time. She's in the in the parade. She's wearing the clothes and she's being processed through the city. And then later on, as the film goes on, we find out where this young woman ended up after young Toby left at the completion of his student film. And it's not... Uh, it's not what we would call a a virginal kind of existence. She had a life of hard knocks. And I think Gilliam is very intentionally uh, playing with this image. There is a tendency in a lot of films, you see it uh, in Scorsese's films, uh, the, the Madonna whore complex, for lack of a better term. The idea that you know women are either these, these virginal, religious, pure... Uh, almost saints, or else they're these sexualized objects for men's lusts, and there's just no ground in between them. And that's obviously a very distorted view of women, and Gilliam is playing into that a little bit with his use of this Madonna imagery in these Holy Week processions that we pointed out. I don't know if Gilliam necessarily himself has a reputation for treating his leading ladies in this way, but he's definitely making the point that maybe male directors as a general group have a tendency to other the women in the in their films to not really see them as fully human and that's something that Toby in this film kind of has to take a journey through that own neurosis of his um where he ide- simultaneously idealizes this young woman from his past and then when he finds out more about the real her he's there's this almost shock or recoiling away from that that is very hurtful to her and that's kind of a balance that Gilliam is exploring and again critiquing himself and saying you know what is a person to you if you're if you're using them in your film do you still see them as a person and how far is too far in Uh, putting them up on a pedestal of sorts or for casting them in a certain role that really only requires them to look or seem a certain way. I think that's a really interesting vein for him to dig into. And the Holy Week setting does provide some pretty interesting backdrop for those kinds of explorations. It's definitely a film worth talking about and that gives us some pretty great material to discuss. Kevin, you and I saw this as a a one-night Fathom event screening. I I read recently that it should be hitting select theaters this weekend, so our listeners can go check it out. And 
I also read that this weekend it might be hitting video on demand. Now, as it is with this film, I'll believe it when I when I do see it, when it's actually there. Listeners, I would encourage you to check it out. This is one of those films that, like I mentioned, it's worth discussing. We'd love to discuss the film with you. You can send us your comments on Twitter at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about The Twilight Zone, the, I don't know if you would say reboot, but something from CBS that's coming up in just a moment. song is Bad Timing by The Fisherman. We are really grateful here at Seeing and Believing for all of our Patreon supporters. You support us so that you keep this show going. You get the word out about Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, we give our our Patreon supporters some really great perks. And I'll just, I'll list one of them right now. So next week, We are going to be reviewing Avengers Endgame. We've got an early screening. We won't spoil it for you, but we will have that review if everything goes according to plan on Friday, the day that it releases. And we're also going to record a a spoiler segment, and we're going to put that on our Patreon page a little later on that weekend, maybe early the next week. And our Patreon supporters will be able to access that. So it's a really great perk. You can access that file, that recording, that segment if you are a Patreon supporter. And if you're not, you can just hop on over to Patreon. We've got a lot of great levels. One of the levels of support that we really like is the what can you buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I was wondering, what what can you buy for 5 bucks? Oh, five bucks will get you your very own Spider-Man. It comes in a little plastic baggie. It's maybe like, a, you know, half a cup of grayish dust. And then you can just put it on your shelf and you've got yourself a little Spider-Man. Hmm. hmm. And there are a lot of a lot of others that you could probably get. And I think I think they're actually more expensive based on how many MCU movies they've been in. So Spider-Man, a little bit lower, uh, but then you have others, maybe like the Winter Soldier, probably a little bit more because he's been featured in more MCU films. I I mean, I don't know. Nobody likes Bucky, though, right? Like... Really? I like Bucky. Really? I yeah. Don't. You are you're the first person I've heard who actually likes that. Everybody I talk to is like, oh yeah, I like the Marvel movies. Bucky's kind of 
boring, though. I could do without him. So I don't know. I guess I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear that even Bucky has has his fans out there in MCU land. I I am I am flabbergasted by that take. And maybe he's so boring that people just don't talk about him. But I think he's cool. I think Uh. he's got that that metal arm. It's kind of like a Terminator <laughs> thing happening. I don't know. Uh, I eh, well, I, I mean, you know, you you do you. I I don't know if he's going to be uh, one of the main draws in the MCU of the next five years. But perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe there he's going to get his own movie, and uh, I will be forced to eat my words. <laughs> it's they, at the end somehow they fix it, and all the characters who died by Thanos' snap come back except for Winter Soldier and nobody notices. (laughs) Everyone's just like, oh, were we missing someone? Nah, it's fine. (laughs) Well, that's what you can get for five bucks. For five bucks, you can also support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. We also want to throw out a little plug for our sister podcast, Persuasion, where uh, Hannah Anderson and Aaron Straza get together and discuss the topics of the day and offer their own unique perspectives on what's going on out there in the world of current events and pop culture. Wade, we have gotten a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at Persuasion headquarters. We know that their new season is fast approaching, so any fans of Seeing and Believing out there who are also fans of Persuasion have that to look forward to. I'll also tease this. There might be a Persuasion Seeing and Believing crossover episode coming up. We don't want to give away too much. We don't want to give any details. We don't even want to say when exactly that crossover is happening, but it seems pretty likely that it's happening. So, Oh, it's going to happen. If it doesn't happen now... It'll happen sometime. It could be two months. It could be two years. But it's definitely it definitely has to. Yeah, happen. it's it's not going to be two years. It's going to be before then. I can guarantee that much. If you want to discover more of Persuasion's back catalog, their archive, you can of course find them on ChristandPopCulture.com, the same as you do with us. And you can always download their episodes from iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. Everything that happens in this universe has to be the way it is. Things happen the way they should. It's all the same number. What are the odds of that? You happy with your life? Don't you want it all? said that would happen right when it did where's our dog we don't have a dog do we go backwards again everything you said would come true has i changed something erased something we're not meant to be here Life sometimes goes like you don't expect it to. What did you do to me? 
turn it off. This is real. You're about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose bounds are that of imagination. Your next stop, the second half of this episode. <laughs> I like that. I think I think as CBS starts another Twilight Zone in the future, <laughs> you're in. Okay, I'll you know what? I will take it and I'm always happy to have the chance to maybe do an intro to this second segment of the show where I can, you know, make me maybe flex my dramatic muscles a little bit, maybe have some fun with it. So, I am really appreciative to the the updated uh Twilight Zone for giving me an occasion to do that. Yeah. No, it at least, whether we like the show or not, at least there's that. We'll always have that. <laughs> we will always have the intro to the second segment of this episode. Well, as we mentioned, there is an update to the much-beloved TV series of the late 1950s and early 60s known as The Twilight Zone. This update is the brainchild of Simon Kinberg, Marco Ramirez, and perhaps most notably Jordan Peele, who also steps into the dapper narrator suit that Rod Serling occupied in the original series. As of this recording, the CBS reboot has aired three episodes, which we'll be reviewing today, with new episodes coming every Thursday night. Wait, you and I have caught up with those three episodes thanks to the magic of CBS All Access, and true to the original form, these are tales that traffic in dramatic irony, that traffic in questions of fate, and offer a healthy dollop of social commentary along the way. Let's jump right into those. To get us started, Wade, I'm wondering what is your history, if any, with The Twilight Zone? And do you see this new series capturing the same lightning in a bottle that the original series did? Yeah, so I I don't have a ton of experience, so I, I will kind of put that out there from the very beginning. I remember watching episodes a little bit haphazardly uh, years ago, and it's been a long time. But I, I do remember the feeling of those episodes and how haunting many of them were. And I've forgotten a number of plots, but I remember images and I remember I remember the emotions that it conveyed. I've also seen the, the you know the the ill-fated 1983 movie that has a number of different directors including Steven Spielberg, which some segments are better than others. So I'm I'm kind of coming into this and there are going to be some listeners who are just like huge Twilight Zone fans and they're going to be like, oh, you know, you, you're going to be repeating things that, you know, we've we've known about for years because it's in, you know, the 1950s show. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to be coming in clean and hopefully just kind of bringing uh, my review to these three episodes and what I kind of feel from them and, and hopefully where I think they're, they're going to go, the show's going to go in the future. Well, I'm a little have a little bit more background with the original than you do, Wade. Although not a whole lot, I have seen uh, kind of the greatest hits of the original Twilight Zone. So I've seen the Bookworm episode. I've seen Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, starring a baby-faced William Shatner, 
and which in this new series is gotten a remake at as Nightmare at thirty thousand feet. Um, I've seen the you know the the. I don't know. I, I guess I don't even know the names of the episodes off the top of my head. They're they're the one I'm I remember like oh the one where they're all monsters or the one where where you know there's this dramatically ironic ending. I I remember those, but I don't have a whole lot of deep knowledge with it. So you and I are probably going to be partners in crime in that the hate mail that we get from Twilight Zone diehards will be coming to both of us. But I feel like I know enough about the original to uh, at least evaluate how closely this new series is following its footsteps. So so that's something. I I feel like the first three episodes that we have are a little bit of a mixed bag, though, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that as well, since you're coming into these with a, a bit less of uh, preconception of what a Twilight Zone series will be. But for me, uh, there's the first episode, The Comedian, with uh, Kumal Nanjiani as a comedian who discovers that his uh, stand-up comedy, uh, sir, once he starts approaching it from a fresh perspective, starts to have perhaps unwanted consequences. There is, of course, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet with Adam Scott as a nervous, paranoid air, airplane passenger who has to try to find a way to keep the airplane from crashing, he thinks. And then there is Replay, which is almost a Black Mirror-esque kind of uh, racial commentary episode where a mother discovers that she has the ability to rewind time, but that doesn't stop the same racist cop from coming after her and her son. So... Of those episodes, I think there's maybe like one and a half good ones, um, but I'm interested to get your thoughts on it, Wade, since you're coming from it, coming at the series from a bit more of a of a fresh perspective. Yeah, I think I'm 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 pretty close to where you are. There are things to appreciate about all three of these episodes. I will say, probably overall, I, I am a little bit disappointed, and maybe it's because I just kind of built this up in my mind. Uh, thinking, you know, this is this is going to be this incredible revival. And it might end up being that. We've only seen the first three episodes. I, I'm particularly frustrated at Nightmare at 30,000 feet because I feel like the premise is really fantastic. And I, I know in the 1983 movie... A character looks out the window and sees this demon creature on the wing. I I like that segment in the 1983 film. I believe it's directed by George Miller. This, of course, is playing with that concept and playing with the original episode concept. I just, I guess I felt like while the writers and directors helped to create tension in that episode, they ultimately it ultimately felt a little bit lazy and that's not how I feel about the entire series. But looking at these three episodes, I, I appreciate little points here and there, but they don't stick those landings. And I feel like the landings are what really could just elevate these episodes more and more. 
But I will say this, I've enjoyed watching all three, and I'm going to continue watching the series. It's, uh, I think it's, it's very interesting. The, the camera work's well done. I like how the colors are very, very uh, rich. Uh, this is, this is a, a show that, that the, the crew is taking great care to make it look good. So that's, that's how I feel about The Twilight Zone in a, in a nutshell so far. Yeah, the the writing on these episodes is the weak point for sure. Although I've got some some I, I'm not sure that the quality among the, the cast is necessarily all that consistent either, which is kind of a challenge of a of an anthology show like this where you can't rely on the same presence being there from week to week, with the exception, of course, of Jordan Peele. So you're inevitably going to have some cast that feel a little bit weaker than others. But even so, I this this series does really baffle with its uh, inaugural episode. The Comedian is not not a good episode. And it's it's odd that that would be the one that the series would choose to launch itself with to sort of be its first foot forward because because it doesn't really seem to hit the qualities that make a good Twilight Zone episode. It seems like it's it's almost like somebody heard about the concept of the Twilight Zone and then tried to write a Twilight Zone episode without ever actually having seen an episode of the show. This is a and a story that is a little bit ham-handed and obvious, which the original Twilight Zone wasn't subtle by any stretch of the imagination, but they had a, a very efficient, lean quality to them, whereas the comedian is almost an hour long, and when it's not being obvious, it's being a little bit muddled, it's not exactly clear how seriously we're supposed to take this, whether it's supposed to be kind of this tongue-in-cheek winky show where it's where it's almost humorous just how ironic everything is and and how on the nose a lot of the commentary is or whether it's really trying to play it straight and make us think hard about the nature of comedy and performance and the consequences of one's actions it i feel like it wants to be taken seriously but it really it's almost impossible to take something this on the nose and, and this self-serious as seriously as it wants us to. That episode is is pretty long, and I'm 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 surprised too because it 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 contains a lot of profanity. It just feels it just feels weird that it that we begin with that episode, and maybe there's a there's a reason for it, but it does it does feel a little bit jarring. I. I like Jordan Peele's commentary at the end. He comes in at the end and he gives us this sort of clear moral to the story. Hey, here's what's happening. And I, I think I think that's pretty good. I, I think that's fine. There are some episodes that allow us to sort of mine a bit deeper, further than that moral of the story. And I, I do appreciate those aspects. I, I think overall, too, I... 
I've probably enjoyed thinking about the episodes and kind of figuring out what they could mean than actually watching the episodes. And that's not really a, a good thing with this type of show. So let's look at uh, 30,000 Feet. And you have Adam Scott's character. And he is a journalist. He's given – he well, he finds a podcast episode, as you mentioned, Kevin – and it talks about how the plane he's on goes down and and crashes. And so he's trying to figure that out. And the point of the episode is you can have individuals who are used to putting aside their bias, their quote-unquote bias, in order to uh, report on the news, in order to write, in order to investigate but they don't always do that in their personal life. And I, th- I think that's I think that's pretty good. There's references to the Trump presidency and how we argue. And there are characters on the plane who are Muslim and uh, people from other countries. And we see kind of a little bit of racism that plays into this episode. Okay, and, then, and, that's, and that's kind of fun. But when I said lazy earlier, I, I meant... <sighs> This character is so far outside what a normal person would do, especially a reporter in that situation, that it just kind of takes me out of the story. And it has a really bad prologue. It just kind of all left a sour, just a sour taste in my in my mouth. So for me, I enjoyed thinking about those ideas and enjoyed just kind of thinking to myself as well, uh, what do you do? that you don't necessarily uh, find in yourself. So uh, for someone who is a pastor or, or, you know, we can talk about Christianity, but is that something we live out? So I think some of those ideas are fine. It's just these episodes don't fully connect the dots. There's a lot of, I think it comes back to the writing in that the, the characters feel... They they feel so baldly allegorical that they don't make much sense as as human beings. And I think that you see a lot of that in the first episode. You see some of that in the third episode, Replay. I had a good time with Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. I don't think it really improves on the original episode starring William Shatner all that much. It goes in a very different direction, which I very much appreciate. It's not the same thing that we've seen just with a new coat of paint. It does try to do something new with its bringing in of uh, the idea of civility, the idea of mistrust of strangers in the Trump era. That's well done. And I do get a kick out of the way that it portrays fate as this thing that is set in stone and all your best efforts to avoid it will simply lead you to it. It's almost like a Greek tragedy in that way. And I appreciated that as far as it went. I think that the epilogue kind of is inexplicable and doesn't add very much to it. Um, and I think that that might be emblematic of the series as a whole, where it's got some strong ideas, but it tends to step all over them with a lot of clumsy storytelling choices and some some bum notes uh, from from the acting department as well. I, I do like the way that these characters are kind of presented in the first three episodes. 
So we have three protagonists who seem to be pretty decent individuals. And when faced with death or when faced with failure, we get to understand more of the psychology behind those individuals. And we also get to see some of their flaws. And that idea, I think, is is pretty good. And the show so far operates under the assumption that humanity might not be all that bad. Not everybody is all that bad, but most people really aren't that good when push comes to shove. And of course, as a Christian who believes in the fallenness of humanity, to watch individuals given some sort of power or some sort of vision on life, of life and watching them kind of take that and go with that and use that for good or also use that to realize their own weaknesses. I, I think that, that that's a great idea. And I'm interested in seeing how that kind of works. This isn't Black Mirror, but there are instances where technology is involved and we see the use of technology. But I do appreciate how the show kind of zooms out and says, okay, this isn't just about technology, but it can be how when we're given these tools, normal tools or even quote-unquote supernatural tools, that it does say something about who we are as as people. So I think there are some ideas there, and that's why, like I said, I, I – I've, I've liked watching the show, even if it's been somewhat of a frustrating experience. Uh, but I'm interested in, saying, in seeing, you know, where does this foundation lead? And what else does this show say about us as human beings? You also see, even though Jordan Peele's um, deftness, both as a director and a writer, aren't really in evidence in what we've seen of the show so far. His fingerprints as a producer are are pretty evident, I think, especially in this third episode replay, which is about a uh, a mother, you know, on a trip with her son. He, she's dropping him off at college. He's going to college. He's going to be uh, one of the first people from that family to attend college. So it's a, a momentous time. And no matter how they uh, try to get to the college, there's always a racist white cop who seems to find them and to find an excuse to to brutalize them or to to profile them in in some way. And the way we get to see this iterated over and over is uh, she discovers that this camcorder she has with her can rewind time. And that does allow the episode to explore the various ways in which uh, a person of color, specifically black men, um, interact with police and the different ways in which those interactions can go south. And that's something that isn't completely foreign to the original Twilight Zone. There is political commentary in those episodes, uh, but we're seeing the political commentary employed in different ways. Uh, and exploring different perspectives, maybe, than we saw in that original series. And it's interesting to see that get a workout in these episodes, even though they're not really... They're, they're, we're, we're not really seeing the, the full power of this fully armed and operational battle station yet, shall we say. There's still a lot of rust that needs to shake off before I would feel confident 
really recommending this, but the the potential's there, and I'm yeah, interested and to see where I, it goes. I think with episode three and even throughout the first three episodes, the the emotion or the feeling that we're working with. So even when the story sort of stumbles, we're feeling this helplessness. Uh, we're feeling this frustration. We're feeling this uh, this sense that fate is taking over, and it's very difficult for us to break through that. So even though, yeah, some of these episodes are are weak, there is that emotion conveyed, and that's, I mean, that's 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 a chore. So it's great that the show is is able to do that, and as the show hopefully uh, improves that we can kind of keep that emotional feeling but also feel satisfied with the overall plot uh, of the show. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about The Twilight Zone. You can stream it on CBS All Access. So it's a little fee every month. You can check out all those episodes. There'll be 10 for this first season, and then we'll kind of see where it goes from there. You can tweet us if you've seen these episodes at Pod at Pod on Twitter. Also email us seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of the episode. It's the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film. What would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Well, we uh, talked about The Twilight Zone, which, you know, might have some slight science fiction undertones. We also reviewed a Terry Gilliam film. So I was thinking that the Gilliam film 12 Monkeys from 1995 might be an appropriate recommendation for this week. This is a feature-length retelling, actually, of a film from the 60s, La Jetée, directed by Chris Marker. It's only half an hour long, but the the story that is evident in that film finds its way into Gilliam's film as well. It's a time travel story about uh, somebody who goes back in time and, in order to try to prevent some sort of cataclysm and finds out that this time travel business is a little bit more complicated than it's all cracked up to be, as is inevitably the case whenever there's a time travel story, right? But I think that what I really appreciate about Gilliam's film is not just the world building, which I think is really effective, but the performances are also quite strong. Bruce Willis is the main character, but Brad Pitt kind of steals the show as as this really off-his-rocker, askew sort of personality who Willis encounters over over the course of the film. Madeline Stowe is also uh, Willis's sort of companion in, in the film. She's also quite good. But I appreciate this film for a lot of reasons. Number one, because it's a sturdy enough premise uh, on its own, but also because I really like Brad Pitt when he's not playing a leading man. I like him in character actor roles a lot. This he's really good in. His role in Burn After Reading is great when he just he plays somebody who's not a handsome leading man, but is sort of a weirdo. And I think he's really great in this film and gives a bit of live wire energy to it that is not only vintage Gilliam, but is also just what a sci-fi fiction film like this needs in order to stand out. 
you know, we were just talking about this before we began recording, and I've seen the film. I like the film. The last time I saw it was on television, and I, I've I've run across it a couple times, and I just need to kind of pick it up because, yeah, it, Brad Pitt, I mean, his performance is really, really cool. I think Christopher Plummer is also in the movie as well. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good pick. I, I agree. I am looking forward to rewatching it. It's actually been a while since I've seen it, but I'm looking forward to re- revisiting it in the future because it's a lot of fun. Uh, what do you have for us this week? Well, I am I'm still chipping away at the top 100 sight and sound list. We did a kind of a top five from that list a few years ago. We did mention that we're still, you know, there are still films we haven't seen from the list. So I'm trying to get some of those out of the way. And this weekend I had an opportunity to watch a three-hour Italian picture from 1963 called The Leopard. This is one of those movies that if you have the time, I would encourage you to to seek it out. Criterion has a DVD out of this film. I picked it up from the library. But it is about a prince, this aristocrat who lives in Sicily. And during the 1960s, Sicily, Italy as a whole, changes. And he's he's sort of caught in the middle. He's observing that change. And the reason I picked this is just because it was kind of on my mind because I watched it this last weekend. But also because when we talked about Don Quixote, just the the sense that time is changing and looking back at our lives and looking at the past and also looking at the future, I think kind of works well with this film. It stars Burt Lancaster and Claudia Cardinale. So a pretty, pretty fantastic cast. It's directed by... Uh, I hopefully pronounced this correct, uh, Lucino Visconti. And this film is just beautifully shot. The blocking in this movie is, is wonderful. And I, I hadn't heard about it too much before I watched the film. It was one of those. I just decided to grab it random from my list. I'm really glad that I did. And I would encourage people to, to definitely check this out because, it, you know, it's on the list for, for a reason. And uh, I, I really did enjoy this movie. So 1963, The Leopard. I haven't seen that one myself. And that's kind of one of those films that makes it onto a list like The Sight and Sound, but it's not got the same sort of brand recognition that you'd see from a, a Citizen Kane or a Vertigo. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really glad that you got that on my radar. Many of the films that I have left are those types of movies. And e- even embarrassingly enough, movies that I, that I haven't even heard of that are on the list, or maybe I've come across them, but I, I'm not really familiar with them. So it's been kind of cool to go through this. Kevin, we're excited to announce, we mentioned it earlier, hey, we're going to be reviewing Avengers Endgame next week. So listeners, definitely check that out. I know all of you have tickets for Thursday or Friday or Saturday, and hopefully we can help you sort the movie out. Uh, First with our non-spoiler review in this episode, or in our next episode, episode 197, and then our spoiler segment that's going to be on our Patreon page. So I'm excited uh, to watch this movie and to see it all kind of come together. And I have tickets 
not only am I seeing an early screening, but I have tickets for two days later. Uh, friends, Priscilla, we're going to go see it. I hope it's good because that's six hours. <laughs> that's, that that is, is six hours. <laughs> that is a lot of your life to spend with a movie that, that is not good. So I'm, I'm really hoping that it is good, if for, not, for no other reason than for your sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.